Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning. We're back again. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to kind of continue through the chapter that we were in last week. And we learned a lot last week about God's sovereignty. And kind of one of the main things that we learned is that God's sovereignty is displayed in caused action and controlled allowance. So there's things that he does. There's actions that he does for his glory and for his will and for his might and power. And then there's also things that he allows. And those things are also working for the good, for his glory and honor and power. And so this means that Jesus has sovereign authority over natural disasters. That's where he calmed the storm, over the devil and the demonic, where he he, uh, healed the demoniac that was in the tombs. He has power over disease. He has power over the destruction of sin. And he has power, is where we're going to see today, even over death. And so as we get into the last part of chapter 5, we're going to see that Jesus is very sovereign. He's in control of all things. He allows things to happen. He uh, controls things that happen. And Jesus is personifying the sovereignty of God and the sufferings of humanity. And so I I said that last week, and I want you to get it this week. I really want you to focus in on the fact that there is suffering in this world. There's, There's hurt, and there's pain, and there's sorrow, and there's all kinds of things that we can't explain, and we don't understand sometimes. And and just as the disciples said, don't you even care that we're perishing? I mean, this is kind of where we are sometimes, but Jesus, he personifies both the sovereignty of God and the sufferings of humanity. He allowed himself to suffer. This means the one who has complete authority over death sovereignly allowed himself to die on our behalf. I mean, that is is a remarkable thing to think about, that the one who has control over all things allowed himself to die. I like how Hebrews puts it. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Look, he had to put on flesh. He had to uh, identify himself with the sufferings of humanity. And he had to go through the deepest and darkest storm, the crucifixion and death, so that through death, he could redeem those who are in fear of death. We all have a fear of death. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but the, he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Jesus was sovereignly in control. I want you to see this. He has the sovereignty of God in the sufferings of humanity, and he did this for the glory of God and for the salvation of those who would trust and believe in him. Jesus sovereignly acted by putting on flesh, allowing himself to experience all that we experience and to face our greatest fear, death, so that we can have life. I mean, death doesn't have the final word. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching that the cross has the final word, that Jesus has the final word, that he does. He controls all things and he is acting and he is allowing things to happen in this world that bring him glory. John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. What a remarkable statement. 
though we may die, though our flesh may be sick and may one one day die, though we will live with him. Because he came, he put on flesh, he suffered as we did so that he could defeat death. I I like how this Canadian scientist, G.B. Hardy, once said, when I look at religion, I have two questions. One, has anyone ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? Those are good questions, right? He said, I checked the tomb of Buddha and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad and guess what? It was occupied. And I came to the tomb of Jesus and it was empty. And I said, there is one who conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And I opened the Bible and discovered that he said, because I live, ye shall also live. What a remarkable statement from this scientist. He's, he's looking at the facts. He's looking at the fact that we all are heading towards death, that we all have to deal with sickness and pain and sorrow and suffering. And he asked the question, man, has there ever been anybody who has ever conquered death? And he found that there is one, Jesus Christ. This Jesus is God in the flesh. I want you to understand this. Allowing himself to die allowing himself to suffer for our sins so that one day we can have everlasting life. And this was his plan, his sovereign plan. His plan was to suffer. His plan was to put on flesh, to go through all the things that we go through so that we could have life and have it everlasting. And and this gospel truth, this should make us fall on our face before him. It, It isn't just some simple nod of appreciation and then we go about our day. It's not something that we do. We just come to church and we, we tip our hat to God and thank him for what he's done. This should wreck us. This truth that God is sovereignly in control and he, he has put on flesh and suffered in our place so that we could have life everlasting, it should change us. It should change you. It should change me. This should stop us in our tracks. This should make us fall on our knees before him. I, I'm reminded in Revelation the. Uh, that John, the, the apostle whom Jesus loved, right? The disciple whom he loved. He, he's, he's getting a vision of Jesus. And, and this, is, this is what he says in Revelation chapter one, verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Now, this is, this is the guy who walked with Jesus for three years. He saw all the miracles. He was part of the inner three, even as we're about to see in, as we get into Mark chapter five, that, that Jesus took him and, uh, and Peter and James and, and he would pull them away. So they saw special things. They saw the transfiguration. They saw all kinds of stuff. But when he sees Jesus in glory, he falls at his feet. He's wrecked. He's just, he's just laying there and he, and he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Listen to this. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. I mean, that should make you hoot and holler right there in in your home, right? That should make you scream and, and shout for joy because we serve a God who is so sovereign that he came and he died so that we could have life everlasting. And when John sees him here, he says, look, don't don't be afraid. You're you're loving and following the one who holds the keys to death in Hades. He's conquered death so that we could have life. And though we may die, yet shall we live. Today, as 
we get into this story, we're, it's kind of a combo story that, that we're hearing here. And today we have two individuals who come in desperate faith to the feet of Jesus. One is a man and the other is a woman. One is rich, the other is poor. One is respected, the other one feels rejected. One is a leader in the synagogue, and one, one is not even allowed to go to the synagogue. One has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying, and one has a 12-year illness, and they're suffering. The only thing these two have in common are that they are both in desperate need of Jesus. Let me ask you, is that something you have today? Do you come with a desperate need for Jesus? Can I pray for us before we jump into Scripture this morning? Father, I do come to you. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the fact that you have defeated death on our behalf, that we can have life everlasting, that that truth would be, would be heard this morning. Even when the sorrows and the pains that we go through seem to be a much louder voice, that you would be a louder voice telling us to fear not, to believe. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done on our behalf. We thank you for your will. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your ways. And we ask that we would glorify you in all that we do in Christ's name. Amen. All right, church, Mark chapter five. The first thing we see is in desperation, faith begs. I know it sounds weird, but when you're desperate, I mean, you're going to beg. You're going to just cry out for help. And that's exactly what happens. Let's start reading in verse 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Now, last week, you know, he had gone across and had the storm and then healed the demon act. And then, and then the people were like, all right, you're, you're messing things up. You need to go away. So he got back in the boat and he goes back over. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. He begins to beg saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. You see, when you and I are at the end of our rope, when we have reached a moment of desperation, there's only one place to turn. You turn to the one who controls all things. Now, this is one of those stories, you don't really want to put yourself in either of these people's positions. You don't want to, you don't want to put yourself in the story because these are painful situations that are about to happen. And these people are coming to Jesus because they have nowhere else to turn. They're in desperation and they need something to change. I like how Paul Tripp puts it, change is always an act of grace. That is why faith is desperate. The most radical and desperate faith is as only as good as its object. And these two people, they're going to come, and their object is Jesus Christ. Now, this first one, Jairus, he's, he's a synagogue official. Now, I, I want you to understand what that means. In each synagogue, there was a man or a group of men who acted as caretakers uh, in, in the synagogue life. So they kind of controlled the management of the synagogue. And Jairus, he would have been a man of honor. He would have been a man who was real, well-respected, uh, a religious man, a, a man of devotion, a man of mature leadership, and he would have been well-respected in the community. And this man, he comes, and it says he falls on his face before Jesus and begins to beg. He begins to cry out for help because he's desperate. I mean, his 12-year-old daughter is dying. She's on her deathbed, and, and he knows that time is of the essence. And so he comes to the one who controls all things, Jesus. Now, Jesus at this point, now, as we've read, we've realized that Jesus has got a reputation in this area. I mean, if you look back at Mark chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Again, he entered the synagogue. Now, that's important. And a man was there with a withered hand. 
And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might have, they might accuse him. Look, so they're setting a trap. They want to see what Jesus will do. And sure enough, he heals this guy. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. So he's, he's got a reputation. This guy, he's an official in the synagogue. And so Jesus has been doing all these miracles and all these healings, and he's hearing about it. Maybe he's been an eyewitness to it, and he doesn't, he doesn't care what other people think. He's going to Jesus. You see, Jairus came up, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. That is clearly out of character for a synagogue leader, especially when he's falling down before someone that the religious establishment wants dead because they believe he's a heretic. He didn't believe he was a heretic. He believed that he was his last resort. Verse 22, Then came one of the rulers from the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. This is important language. I like how Matthew says it when he's given this account in chapter 9, verse 18. He says, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him. Now, it just sounds kind of proper and kind of, kind of nice, but this word in the Greek, it, it means to worship. It means to bow down. It means to have reverence. I mean, it would almost be to, to kiss the hand. I mean, he is at a moment of just desperation, and he's come, and he's praying, and he's worshiping. Jars came in an act of prayer and worship. I mean, think about prayer and worship in your life. When you're desperate, it looks different than when it's just routine. Am I right? He came in faithful desperation. He didn't let what others might say or think about him keep him from bowing. Sometimes we're way too concerned with what other people might think when we come to Jesus. It might ruin our reputation. It might go against what they would do. And so it holds us back. Not this guy. He's reached the end of his rope. He desperately needs Jesus. And desperate faith doesn't care what others might think or say. See, this man makes a desperate plea in a moment of worship. Now, I hope that this is a moment of worship for you. And if you are in a place of desperate need, then I would ask that you would take a moment and make a desperate plea to God. Cry out, implore him to move, to change, to send his grace. See, most of our prayers are not desperate pleas, but rather planned repetitions. Am I right? We might sit down at the dinner table. We might have lunch here in just a little bit, and we might say a repeated prayer that we've said a thousand times. But then there's other prayers that are desperate pleas for God's help. And likewise, our worship is reduced often to reading words on a screen when it should be kneeling before a holy king, falling on our face before him in desperate need of his love and his grace, and sometimes his forgiveness. Am I right? I want to take a moment. I want to pause. This is a prayer prompt. This is what we do. And we pause for 30 seconds and we we reflect on what we've just learned, and I'm going to ask you to, to pause and take a moment to pray. I like how Gary Miller puts it. Prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise. What is God's promise? What is your desperate plea, and what is his promise to you? Romans 8, 38 and 39. Let me read these verses to you. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me tell you, here's the promise. When you come in desperation and you fall at his feet, 
you will experience his love. Will you do that right now? Will you pause and will you pray? Number two, in desperation, faith bows. Let's continue reading right here, picking up verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Let's keep reading. Verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I mean, Jesus calls this woman a daughter. And this woman is desperate. And when you and I are at the end of our rope and we have reached a moment of desperation, there's only one place to turn and you turn to the one who controls all things. This woman, she had spent all of her money. She had looked everywhere that she could look for hope, for hope and for healing. And she's made it to her last resort, Jesus Christ. And so she's heard the reports and she comes to him. She was desperate and she was destitute. She was physically broken she was financially bankrupt and she was spiritually destitute. Many of us, that's the exact same place we are when we come to Jesus. We, we've, we've gone through something that has physically broken us. Maybe it's been an illness or a sickness or, or something in our life has not gone the way we wanted it to. Maybe it's a relationship and we just feel physically broken. Maybe financially bankrupt. Maybe we've made decisions and we have nowhere else to turn and we can't, we can't make ends meet. And so we turn to Jesus or maybe... We're just spiritually destitute. We tried religion when we were younger, and as we got older, we just kept going uh, away from him until we become so spiritually destitute that we cry out in help. This woman cries out. She falls. She bows before him. She had nowhere else to turn. Verse 26, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. I mean, she had spent all of her money. She was desperate and destitute. And so she began to bow. You see, desperate and destitute people bow before Jesus. They have nowhere else to go. Often we don't bow to Jesus because we don't feel destitute. Maybe we don't even feel desperate enough. We are still placing our confidence in what we can accomplish. Look at what Matthew 19, 23 records. And it says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Jesus says this. He says, look, a lot of people won't come to Jesus and they won't bow to Jesus because they don't feel they need Jesus because they keep looking for what they can accomplish. They're still looking in what they have confidence in. Maybe it's money or possessions or power or, or health. 
And so they don't come to him and he's like, look, it's so difficult because when you are destitute and when you are desperate, you bow. You bow and you worship. Worship. Verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. According to Leviticus 15, 25, a woman with an issue of blood was considered unclean. I mean, she was kind of like a leper. She wasn't allowed to the synagogue. She was destitute. She was kicked out. And she comes up in this crowd. She fights through the crowd and she's trying her best to get to Jesus. You can imagine that after 12 years of constant blood loss that this woman must have suffered from anemia. She was probably weak in her state and it probably took most of her physical strength that she even had to get to Jesus that day. She was excommunicated. She was exhausted. She was embarrassed and she was desperate to make it to Christ. And possibly when she knew she couldn't go any further, she reached out and said, if I just touch his garments, I will be made well. She said, if I can just touch. This word touch is so important in the Greek because it means to fasten to, to adhere to, to hold on to, to cling to. Listen, faith oftentimes is a desperate clinging to Jesus. It's the grace that God gives us to hold on even when things are going horribly wrong. And some of us, we're just, we're just trying our best to get to Jesus just to reach out to him. I'm hanging on because this is a rough ride. And that's exactly where this woman was. See, when every ounce of earthly strength is gone, it is by the grace of God that we are given faith to hold on to Jesus. When we need that extra bit of grace, that extra bit of change, he gives it to us. Verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from, from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? Those who cling to Jesus in faith, have a personal relationship with Jesus. And the reason I say that is because he is making it personal. Jesus ain't going to let this slide. He isn't going to just keep going in the crowd with, with Jairus. He wants to stop and he wants to find out who has this faith, who's reached out, who's clinging on to me. It is personal because every ounce of power and every gift of life-changing grace is a personal encounter that he feels. When we reach out to Jesus in faithful desperation, he is personally involved in that moment of grace-filled power. I mean, this is remarkable. It's a personal relationship with Jesus because Jesus makes it personal. He wants to know you. He wants to see you. He wants to, he wants to stop and spend time with you. I love what John MacArthur puts. He said, Jesus felt the power flow out of him when he healed that woman. He felt the power flow out of him when he saved you. He fills the flow of power into your life as he sanctifies you. And he'll fill the power that takes you into glory. This is intimate, personal involvement with every one of us. What a remarkable thought that we serve, that we cling to a personal Savior who knows us, who understands every time that we cry out to him and he gives us life-changing grace. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She confessed everything. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and, he, and be healed of your disease. He calls her a daughter. He calls her a child of God. He calls her to a moment of confession. Confession leads to the completion of healing. 
I mean, that's, that's a remarkable thing. She's already felt the power. She's already been healed, but maybe there's something more that she needs. And it's that personal reassurance from Jesus Christ. Hey, confess your sins. Come to me when you're broken and tell me the whole truth is what he says. And I will give you healing. Grace begins a healing work in you that is completed in confession. Maybe right now there's things in your life that you need to just come clean with. Maybe you need to stop and you say, God, you know the whole truth anyways. This is, this is really what's going on in my life. This is really what's going on in my heart. And maybe you'll experience a, a better understanding of grace-filled healing in your life. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. I mean, basically he says, your faith has saved you. You're, you're, you're not going to have to deal with this issue anymore. I, I've healed you from it. Confession leads to the completion of healing. Grace begins a healing work in you that is completed in confession. You can't discredit confession. Even James says this in 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Oh, there's confession that needs to happen in the church. There's, there's some coming clean. As this woman told the whole truth, there's some times where we need to tell the truth. We need to come clean and we need to stop and we need to fall at the feet of Jesus and we need to bow because he is worthy. We need to cling to him, hold on to him. At this moment, let's stop for a prayer prompt and, and, and let's reflect on these things real quick. See, she had a desperate plan to encounter a personal savior. Let me ask you, what's your plan? Do you have a plan to encounter Jesus today, right now, where you are? Will you reach out to him? She didn't stay at home. She got up with premeditated motion and went towards Jesus. She had grace-driven effort. Let me tell you, you can't just sit there and hope it happens. What, what is your plan for moving towards Jesus today? Will you reach out to Jesus right now in prayer? Will you pause? Will you pray? Third, last thing, in desperation, faith continues to believe. I put continues in there because it, it gets really difficult as we get through the, the rest of this chapter right here. Mark chapter 5, verses 35 through 43. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what was said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James. And there he is, John, uh, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand and said to her, Talitha 
kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. You see, when we are at the end of our rope, when we have reached a moment of desperation, there is only one place to turn. You turn to the one who controls all things. You see, this guy had a plan. I'm going to go get Jesus. I'm going to bring him back to my house. And before he can get there, the, the wheels come off the plan, right? While he was still speaking, there, were, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Like it's too late. I like how Mike Tyson puts it. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And, and the truth is that this, this life has a tendency to sooner or later punch you in the mouth. The hope for being able to withstand this punch of adversity, disaster, affliction, and sorrow is prayer. There's a moment there where Jesus speaks to him. Believe. Continue to believe. Prayer isn't about getting God on your agenda. It's about getting on his. And sometimes we just need to hear his reassuring words, belief. Prayer is the root system of faith, and it's the stabilizer in times of uncertainty. You know, just like a tree has a root system, you can't really see the roots, but if the roots weren't there, the tree would certainly fall over. And so this, this root system of faith is found in what's hidden, a prayer life, a, a desperate prayer life that spends time with the Lord. Verse 36, but overhearing what was said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Prayer doesn't change, just change things. Prayer changes those who pray. If it wasn't for Jesus saying these reassuring words, I, I'm sure this, this man would have just, just crumpled under the sorrow of what had just happened. You see, sometimes the answers to our prayers or yes, sometimes the answers are later, and sometimes the answers are no. And when the answers are no, and the circumstances don't change, God in his grace allows us to change. I, I hope you understand that. Sometimes he says no. And when the circumstances don't change, and when things don't go the way you want them to, as you had planned, he gives you the grace that you need to get through that, to be changed, to be on his agenda, on his plan. Change is always an act of grace that moves us from fear to faith. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler in the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, back in these days, they would actually hire professional mourners. And so they would have people playing the flute and they would have women wailing loudly. I mean, they would be making quite the commotion. And so that's exactly what's happening. The funeral service is already taken off. There's professional mourners there. It's loud, it's chaotic. And when he, when he entered, he said to them, why are you making all this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And these professional mourners become mockers. I mean, they start making fun of Jesus and laughing at him. But what happens here is that Jesus defines death as a temporary condition. That's important for us to know because he's the one that controls all things. And if Jesus calls this a temporary condition, then we can count on it being a temporary condition. That's why he uses the metaphor or the analogy of sleep 
I like how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do that have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Sleep is this metaphor. Is a, it's, it's, a, it's not a permanent thing for those who are dead. For those who believe, death is temporary. And, and he takes her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which is an Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. This word Talitha, it literally means like a youth or a lamb. So he says, little lamb, I say arise. Little lamb, I, I call you to wake up. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This little lamb, this young 12-year-old girl, hears the voice of the shepherd calling his sheep. One day, softly and tenderly, those who believe will hear the Savior's voice calling them to arise and awake. You see, this is more than a story of two miracles. It's a story of the cross. Jesus sovereignly submitting to become human and to suffer a criminal's death on the cross, enabling him to not only heal this woman or to give temporary life to this dead girl, but is to give eternal life to all those who would believe in him. Uh, uh, let's go back to Hebrews 9, 26. He has appeared once and for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. I think the appropriate question here is, are you desperate? Have you come to a moment where you are eagerly waiting on him? Are you waiting on the one who gives life after death? Are you waiting on the one who will dry every tear, comfort every sorrow, and heal every sickness? Jesus said, do not fear, only believe. Do you believe? Can I close in a time of prayer? Father, we do. We come to you. And we ask that you would give us the grace, the grace needed to get through each and every day that we would, like this lady, cling to you in faith. Like this man, that we would not fear, but we would only believe. That you would be with us with the, your personal, intimate presence. That you would give us the power of sanctification, the power to stand, and the power to move forward as we follow you. And God, we desperately wait on you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, church. I uh, pray that God's word blessed you this morning and that you will uh, have a blessed week. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons 